It is wonderful to be with you in your church. I have been delighted. Uh, about a year ago, I moved to South Carolina, so I had never lived in the Carolinas before or this part of the country. And my wife and my kids and I were not quite sure what to expect. My wife is Canadian. My children are dual citizens, but they've lived all their life in Canada. And so when I moved all the way to the south, I didn't know if the cultural adjustment, if they could make it or not. But uh, last December, early on in the first week or so of December, we looked back at the temperature where we had moved from. It was 38 degrees below zero. And it was 83 degrees in Greenville that day. And all my family together in unison cried out, God bless America. So, <laughs> so I think they're making the adjustment well. This Thursday is a special day for me because it's my anniversary and I'll be married 26 years and uh, I uh, have learned to not forget that particular date. And, uh, you know, it's interesting though to me when you get to an anniversary, you always kind of reflect. I'm a historian, so I always have to look back, you know, I have to go back to the, uh, through the years. That's what I do. And there's one thing I, I don't understand why God did this. Why did, it's, it's kind of like with parenting and marriage. Why do you get all the experience at the end when you've already made all kinds of mistakes early on that experience really would have helped you with? I, looking back over the first year of married life, I thought that things were going to go well for me because I, I didn't just rush into marriage. I had dated my wife for two years and I felt after two years of dating and talking and sharing, what else could there be to know about her? We, you know, I, I felt like I kind of knew it all, and I'd read a book on marriage, and, and I'd known lots of married people. You know, I grew up in the home of two married people. I kind of watched them. I thought, I mean, how hard can this be? And so I got married and immediately went to Texas to go to seminary, and we were with a whole group of newlyweds who'd all gotten married just like us and then moved to seminary. So we all have been displaced from our home and friends and family. We were all trying to make new friends. And so every, all the newlyweds are inviting each other to each other's homes to get to know each other. And it was interesting to me, one season there, that first semester, that we were invited to eight different couples' homes. All of them newlyweds, all of them trying to make friends, eight homes. All eight served us spaghetti. I think that's all they knew how to make at that point. We ate it on their fine china, their crystal goblets. They just got into their wedding, but it was pretty basic after that. And, and I remember one couple, this couple, very, very nice, but the, uh, the wife apparently had had a disaster with her pasta, and it had all congealed into one solid glob, and she was frantically trying to you know, peel it apart there in the back kitchen. So her husband was assigned the task to keep us preoccupied in the meantime in the living room. But the problem was that her husband believed in one-word conversations. And so we would ask him questions like, well, our, you know, nice house you have here. And he would say, thanks. Uh, are you in, are you, do you go to seminary? Yes. You know, just kind of like that. And so we're, we're trying to kind of break through this really riveting conversation that we're having with him. And my wife is an expert with people. My wife just has a way of just connecting with people, very sensitive. And so she asked the question, she says, well, tell me, if you're in seminary, what classes are you taking? And he mentioned several classes, including Old Testament survey. And my wife gets all excited and says, Old Testament survey? I'm fascinated by that subject. I've always wanted to know more about that. Now, this was news to me because... <laughs> 
You see, I also was taking New Old Testament survey in that semester. I was with a different professor, but I would come home all excited about some, you know, theory of, of uh, you know, creation or the flood account or something else, and uh, I'd start telling my wife these exciting truths that I'd learned in Old Testament survey class, and she, her eyes would start rolling, and she'd ask me, what's for dinner? And, and now... I'm just delighted to hear that she actually is interested in Old Testament survey. And so this guy would start, you know, my wife said, well, what are you learning? I, I, I'm really interested to know what you're learning. So he starts telling what she's lear- he's learning. But, you know, apparently he was not as good of a student as me because he was leaving out major, major theories and books and Old Testament scholars. And I just thought if my wife is going to get a lesson in, in Old Testament, I, I don't want her to have huge gaps in her training and teaching. So I would just periodically sort of insert and say, and Lisa, you know, also there's this theory and there's this book that was written a couple years ago and they think that perhaps, and you see, that was the first time I had ever been given the look. Now... <laughs> See, we had, we had dated for two years, and this sweetheart of mine had never given me the look. I, you know, there was nowhere in the wedding vows was a look mentioned. It was, things had been going fine. But I'll never forget the first time my wife gave me the look. And at first I thought that maybe she just had something in her eye, you know. Maybe she was having an allergic reaction or something. It's like, honey, are you okay? And she's giving me this look. And then she would turn back to this man and say, and what else are you learning? And he would start, you know, stumbling through what he was learning. And, and at a certain point when I felt it was appropriate, I would kind of slip in there and say, and Lisa, there's also this theory. Don't forget that. And I'd get the look again. And then uh, at one point, the, the wife called her husband into the kitchen because now there was a pronounced scorched smell to the meat sauce. Things were going downhill rapidly. And so as soon as he leaves for the kitchen, my wife turns on me and says, why do you keep doing that? I said, doing what? She said, talking. She said, she said, every time I get this guy starting to talk and open up, you butt in with some boring Old Testament theory. <laughs> I, I realized at that point I was right. My wife did not care about Old Testament. She cared about people. And she was a master at helping people to open up and to give them a blessing. And I hadn't recognized that. I kind of thought it was all about me and what I knew. And uh, my wife was focused on this person. She was, a, she was a master, is a master at blessing people. And what it came to dawn on me is that she and I were in a married relationship. Two human beings can't be in a closer relationship than being married. I thought that after years of talking together and now being married, that we knew each other quite well. And yet here she is trying to bless someone, trying to... to to be a part of God's work, to leave a blessing on this man and his family, and I'm completely missing it. Is it possible to be married to someone and yet not know them very well? Is it possible to have a friend or a business colleague that perhaps you've known for years and yet not really to know them very well? Is it possible to be a Christian and to go to church every Sunday and to do Bible readings and to say prayers and yet after years of being a Christian, not to really know Christ very well. Is it possible? Well, it is. And even the 12 disciples discovered it's possible to be one of Jesus' own 12 disciples, to walk with him along the roadside, to hear him teach, to watch him perform miracles, to share fellowship with him around a meal table, and yet not to know him very well. And there's a wonderful account in John chapter 14 
where we discover how easy it is to be around God and yet not really to know God. And I, I just have to confess to you that um, I have come under the conviction that Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is not a religion where you sign up and say, okay, I'm going to choose this religion. So that means I'll go to church on Sunday. That means I'll believe the Bible. It means I'll live according to the Ten Commandments. It's not a religion. Christianity is a relationship with a person. You choose to follow the person of Jesus Christ. You choose to hear his voice and do what he tells you to do. You choose to go where he tells you to go. You relate to a person, and the the better that you get to know that person, the easier it is to recognize his voice. The, The easier it is to trust him when he asks you to do hard things. And so Christianity is not simply embracing a set of doctrines or beliefs or morals. It is about committing your life to a person of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, Philip had not realized that at this point. And so notice in verse 7, Jesus is speaking and says, If you had known me, you would have known my father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is sufficient for us. And then these devastating words from Jesus. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? What a stinging rebuke. Have you been with me so long, Philip? Have I spent so much time with you, yet you don't even know me? I, uh, this year, celebrated 41 years as a Christian. 41 years, the Spirit of God has resided within my life. And, you know, sometimes we think, wow, congratulations, you've been a Christian 41 years. But, you know, I don't think God celebrates the length of our Christian life. I think he celebrates the depth of our Christian life. Is it possible to be a Christian 41 years and be a shallow, self-centered Christian for 41 years? Is it possible to be a Christian and yet be an unforgiving, bitter, cynical Christian for 41 years? It is. And... uh, If God were to look at my life and see the kind of Christian I have become, after 41 years of the Spirit of God living within me, he might shake his head and say to me, Richard, after 41 years of being with you and you with me, is that all that you know of me? Is that all that you know of me? You see, the moment that you become a Christian, almighty, infinite God comes to you and says, how much of me do you want to know? Can you imagine the God who created the universe saying it's an open invitation? How much of God do you want to know? In the book that's out on the book table I wrote uh, last year, I was so intrigued by this because I thought infinite God says, how much of my power do you want to experience? How much of my infinite character and my nature do you want to know and experience? How much of the joy of the Lord do you want to experience? It's open-ended. How much do you want? It's all available. So why is it that every Christian is not filled with the power of God, who's not constantly excited about the next exciting thing that they've learned about God? It's because we set limits on what we experience of God. In other words, we become too easily satisfied with God. 
We get a little bit of God and it becomes enough for us. We have times in our past when we were growing and reading God's word and excited about worship and then we get busy and somewhere along the line, most Christians say, I think I've reached a level of Christianity I could be comfortable with and we stop and we never know what could have been. Well, you see, Philip, he might have fooled you because he's one of the 12 disciples. So you might think, hey, one of the 12 disciples, obviously he knows Jesus really well. But when he spoke, his words revealed he didn't know Jesus that well at all. And oftentimes I've discovered that our words can reveal how well we know Jesus as well. For instance, when we pray, prayer sometimes offers a window into our walk with God. Have you ever known people that when they pray, you just stop and think, wow, I've never heard prayers like that. I, I remember uh, I was in a, a, doing a chapel service at our seminary several years ago. And we'd had a speaker come and speak, and usually the speaker is sort of the, the focal point. And we'd had a few announcements and sung some songs. And then all I need to do is close in prayer. I just need someone to pray because that's how you close everything in church. And so I, I just called on a woman at the front, a humble uh, unassuming woman, I said, would you just close us in prayer? We all bow our heads. Let's just get this over with. You always do a closing prayer. This woman began to talk to God in ways I'd never heard anybody talk to God before. It was clear to me she was going places in prayer I had never been. She was going down pathways with God and talking about subjects it had never crossed my mind to talk to God about. And she was thanking God for doing things it hadn't crossed my mind God was even doing. And she was asking these amazing things for God to work in people's lives. And I've never in my life been so taken with a prayer that when everything was closed, I didn't even go thank the speaker for a sermon. I went and found the person who closed in prayer and said, I want to thank you because you blessed me today. You showed me what prayer ought to be. And I stand convicted that that's not the way I talk to God. Have you ever been around people like that? They pray and you suddenly realize, you know what? There's a lot more of God to be experiencing than what I have been. And a lot of times the kind of praying we do just reveals how ignorant we really are of who God is. You know, have you ever been in a church service where someone did not pray and say, Oh God, would you be with us today? God be with us. Of course, if God were to suddenly speak out loud, he might say, I never left you. In fact, I promised you I would never leave you or forsake you. Why do you keep asking me to do something that's unnecessary? I didn't go anywhere. The fact that you keep asking me to be with you indicates you don't believe me when I said I would never leave or forsake you. A lot of the praying we do is filled with cliches that don't even mean anything. And then we wonder why... There's so few people who go to the deep places in prayer. Or I've heard people pray, oh God, would you come in power? And I think God would say, well, I don't come any other way. <laughs> how, how else would you want me to come? As a weakling? That's not, that's not going to happen. Uh, but we pray stuff all the time. And it indicates we don't really believe that's even what he does. So we've got to ask him to do it. Another way is that you can reveal your walk with God is by the way you worship. How you worship God says an awful lot about what you believe about God. I, I'm in a lot of church services, and it's kind of a fad right now. Worship leaders will say, God, we invite you into our service today. We invite you into our worship time. Now, you know, the problem I have with that is, it's not our worship service. It's his. And he's not the guest who gets invited into our worship. We're the guests who get invited into his presence. It's not about 
invited. Hey, God, if you're not busy, you might want to join us. A few of us are getting together. We're going to have a worship time. Thought you might like it. You know, that's not worship. Worship is Almighty God present, wondering if we're going to show up. And what our hearts will be like when we do get here. Will we have fought with our spouse while driving to worship God? Will we have yelled at our kids? Will our minds be racing about work on Monday? Or will we actually walk in with a holy reverence, knowing we're about to encounter Almighty God? We don't invite as an afterthought God to join us. If God's not already here, we're, whatever we're doing, we're not worshiping. Because if God's not present, worship's not happening. So either he's already here, and we, he's just summoned us into his presence, or whatever we're doing, we're just having a church service but we're not encountering God. I've, I've been in services where I felt like we encountered a music service, we encountered a sermon, we encountered a program, but we never encountered God. Uh, we need to understand that when we worship Him, if you know who you're meeting, uh, it's going to affect how you worship Him. I remember one time a couple years ago, I was traveling quite a bit, and I, I'm not usually at my home church very often. I'm usually on the road somewhere. And so this particular Sunday, I, I arrived home after midnight, flying in from somewhere, and I was tired. I got up that Sunday morning, and I went to uh, the church, and people hadn't seen me for a while. Oh, Richard, good to see you, and so on, and we're visiting. And uh, I come into the church service. We start into the first worship song. It's the one worship song I just don't like. There's a song, I, I'm not going to say what it is, but it's a song, I just don't like it. It has nothing to do with the sound of the music or how loud it is or if they use drums or anything else. It's the words are just bad words. They're just, I don't think they're biblical. And it just kind of bothers me that the worship leader would ask me to sing something in church that I thought was not true. And now I, I usually just kind of deal with it. I kind of mumble the words I don't like or I just sort of play along, you know, but, but this Sunday I was tired and I just didn't have it in me. Now you have to understand, I'm the kind of person that loves to bless the pastors of my church. So you could go to any pastor of my church. I've taken probably every one of them out for lunch and ministered to them and thanked them. I just do that. I, I try to be a blessing to the staff of my church. I want my pastors to be glad that I go to their church. So I, I'm not, I'm not known for being obnoxious, but this Sunday I just, I was just in an obnoxious mood. So I, I, <laughs> So I, I just thought, you know, why is it every time I'm at my church, we sing that same song? I mean, there's lots of songs that could be sung. Does he not have a big enough repertoire? Or does he wait until he sees me walk in just to sing that one song that just gets to me? So I'm just not going to give him the pleasure of even having me sing today. I'm just going to fold my arms and just sit this one out. I'll wait for the next song. And so I'm sitting over here where he can see me. I thought maybe he'll notice me just standing there. Just kind of like I'm in, I, I thought I was coming to the church of the sour lemons instead of uh, to the church where we are. And I'm sitting there being all sour about it all. And uh, while I'm just kind of standing there, I don't, I'm not singing, so I'm looking around. And I look over and I notice that on the stage are my two sons. They both are playing on the worship band. One's playing the guitar, one's playing the drums. They're playing their hearts out with this worship song. They're just into it. They're playing, helping God's people to worship God. And uh, I look a couple of uh, rows down. There's my teenage daughter. She's singing her heart out, just singing to God, trying to glorify Him. And in that moment, it was as if God just whispered to my soul and said, Richard, do you ever want your children to see their dad frowning in church? frowning in a worship service because something the service is doing displeases him. 
I thought to myself, you know, with all my heart, I want my kids to grow up to say, even when dad didn't necessarily like the song, dad can't, I can't sing. So they know that I, I can't be too fussy. I was, I was in a service the other day. My 18-year-old daughter was sitting next to me, uh, and I was singing away, and she kept looking at me. I thought maybe she needed something. I finally said, Carrie, are you okay? She said, that's what I was going to ask you. Are you okay? I said, what do you mean? Just because... I've never heard a human being sound that bad while they were singing. I thought, like, can I get you something? Do you have stomach cramps or something, or what's the problem? It's like, so I'm just a terrible singer. But, uh, it, but, but I wanted my kids to say, you know what? Dad could have flown home at midnight the night before. They might have had a whole array of songs that he didn't even like. But every chance he got to tell God how grateful he was for what he'd done for me. He just couldn't help it. Dad would just get filled with joy and he would just start singing with all of his heart. Oh God, I can't thank you enough. One more Sunday that I have the opportunity to gather with your people and just say thank you. It's going to take you all the rest of eternity. And I still won't adequately be able to tell you what it means when you took all my sins away. When your own son died for me. When day after day you never leave me or forsake me and you walk with me and you love me and shower me with your goodness. Oh God, even if this service is not the best service, it's just human. That's the problem. There's, not a, there's no human words adequate to tell God how grateful we are. There isn't a hymn or chorus written that perfectly expresses all that God has done. And in this life, we just take these imperfect instruments and say, but God, I'm just going to use this moment to say thank you once again. And I've heard so many people say, you know, I don't know what happened. I dragged my kids to church all through their childhood. But when they became teenagers, they all walked away. None of them go to church anymore. And I want to ask, well, what did they see when you, you dragged them to church? Did they see their parents frowning because they didn't like the the song selection that day? Did they see their dad looking at his watch every other minute because he feared the pastor was going overtime? Did did he hear them complain there was no place to park when they got to the service? Did they hear them critique, their, their parents critique how the church was organized and run all the way home? What seeds were you planting in your children's hearts week after week after week that led your kids to say if Mom and dad were so unhappy at church, at least we've got enough sense not to waste our time doing something that mom and dad had no joy about. I just had to say to God, right? God just kind of dealt with me right there. I, I remember I was reminded in that service of a Chinese pastor I met who for 15 years was kept in, in solitary confinement uh, for being a Baptist minister. 15 years in a, a little cell, concrete floor, nobody to worship with him, no uh, choruses or hymns, no, no instruments of any kind. He, he didn't even know half the time if it was Sunday or not. And I asked him later when I had lunch with him, what did you do on Sundays there in that little cell by yourself? And this man imprisoned 15 years for no, nothing bad except believing in God and being a minister. He said... Uh, You know, they took away my church, they took away my money, they took away my income, they took away my family, they took away my Bible, they took away my clothes, they took away everything. But he said, but they couldn't take God's presence from me. And every Sunday, it was as if God would just fill that little cubicle, and it was almost like it would just glow with the presence of God, and he let me know he was still there. And he said, I remember singing all by myself every song of praise I knew and praying and and just and and, and communing with him and thanking him that he had not left me or forsaken me God reminded me that morning while I'm pouting in my church that uh, here was a Chinese pastor for 15 years 
had to worship God in a cold cell with nothing to worship. No, not even a bad chorus to be led in to sing. And, and he was able to have a, an amazing time with God. And then God said, and here you are in this beautiful church building, comfortable pews, a worship team that's practiced all week to give you a great worship experience, and you're sitting there pouting. And God just said, don't you ever do that in my house again. Because you don't know who I am. If you can come into the house of God and, and be in a bad mood. See God raised upon his throne to be reminded of what he has done. If you really know who God is, you cannot help but want to praise him from the bottom of your heart. But a lot of us think that being a Christian is simply going to church. Putting your hour in, get that service over with, and then you're, you're free for another week. It's not simply religious activity. It is coming to know and praise and thank Jesus Christ, the person who's done all that he has done for you. Just two other ways you can tell a person's knowledge of God. One is by uh, their obedience. Their obedience. Uh, You know, I, I hear people all the time talk about this. They'll say, you know, I think God wants me to go on a mission trip but I'm scared of flying. And so I've been wrestling with God about that. I think God wants me to work with the teenagers in our church, but I've been wrestling with God about that because I don't like teenagers. Or I I think God wants me to increase my giving. But, you know, in these hard times, I've just been wrestling with God because I I don't want to, I don't think I can afford it. And we talk about wrestling with God as if it's kind of a super spiritual thing that we do. But let me tell you this. When someone tells me that they are wrestling with God about something, that indicates to me that that person does not know God, at least does not know him well. I'll tell you this, when you one day stand in the throne room of heaven and you stand before the very throne of God, you see God enthroned as he is. You see the myriads of angels gathered around him, crying out, holy, 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 so that the very thresholds of heaven are trembling. And you see the countless millions of saints prostrate on their faces before Almighty God. There's going to be all kinds of thoughts that may come through your mind. But the thought of wrestling with God will not be one of them. At that point, you will see God as he is. You will see yourself as you are. And the thought of wrestling with him will appear as ludicrous as it is in this life. But in this life, we actually treat him more like a nagging best friend who keeps trying to offer us advice that we keep rejecting. Instead of Almighty God. You know the people who really know who God is. Because when God tells them something, no matter how difficult it might be, their answer is yes. Remember that model prayer? What did Jesus say? Oh, pray that God's will will be done on earth exactly as it is done in heaven. How is it done in heaven? Immediately. Without arguing. Without debating. Because they know what God is like. And Jesus said, oh, your prayer ought to be that in this life, we would obey God the same way God is obeyed in heaven. And then a final way is through our quiet times. That as we spend time with God, you know, I hear so many Christians who, if they're really honest, will say, you know, I just struggle to have times with God. I, I'm not a morning person. I, I, I fall asleep. I, I find reading my Bible boring. I don't know what to pray. And, and yet... We're talking, we're spending time with the person, allegedly, who's the most important person in our life. I, uh, I remember my dad one time was counseling a very, very busy businessman. The business, he was, my dad was saying, you need to get up early enough to spend unhurried time with God. 
Get up early enough, you don't have to look at your watch for fear you're going to be late for work. You know you've got time, as much time for God as you need. This man looked at my dad and said, Henry, you obviously don't know how busy I am. This was a very busy CEO. He said, you don't know how busy I am. My dad's response is, obviously, you don't know who you're going to meet. Because if you knew who you were going to meet, you'd make the time. Well, this man was smitten by that and decided he would try. He started getting up at 4.30 every morning. The next time my dad saw him, he said, you will not believe what God has been doing through my life since I started meeting with him. He said, I've led my first employee to faith in Christ. He said, God has helped me make so many difficult decisions of late. God is blessing everything I put my hand to. He said, I would not forsake that time with God for anything. It's the most valuable thing I do as a business person every day. I remember when my dad was coming to town a couple of years ago, and I was, he and I were writing a book, and we had one day to, to get a lot of work done on the book. And so uh, I said, Dad, we've got one day. We've got to get right at it. No dilly-dallying around here. I, I, he was 65 years old. I said, Dad, you know, I know you're retired now, but like, we've got to work hard tomorrow. So I said, how about being ready to go at 6 o'clock in the morning? I thought my dad would be quite proud of me. Six o'clock, already in the harness, working, getting this book written. My dad looked at me and said, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. My son is sleeping in till six in the morning. He said, <laughs> said, I've raised a sluggard for a son, he said. I came down at six. He'd been up since four. And, uh, and as I'm getting my coffee, he says, Richard, I want to read something to you this morning. Just, it'll blow you away, he said. I thought he was going to read something out of a, late, a popular book that had just come out. He starts reading out of Proverbs. And when he uh, reads the Bible, he uses little uh, notepads like this. And he, starts, he pulls up his first page and he starts telling me what God showed him in Proverbs. And he keeps flipping over the page and pulling up another page. And he says, and then God led me over to Isaiah. And I was reading over there and seeing what God said. And then he led me to Jeremiah to compare what he said there. And then God took me over to the Gospels, and he said, I saw what Jesus said, and finally my dad has flipped over 12 pages of notes like this. Now it's 6 o'clock in the morning at that point, and after dad turns down, the, he's 65 years old, he's read the Bible for decades, knows the Bible as well as anybody I know, and at 4 o'clock that morning, God had given him 12 pages of notes, and my dad looks up at me and he says, he's got tears in his eyes, he said, this morning, he said, God showed me there's still so much he wants to do in my life. I thought at 65, he's just getting started. Because he realizes after a lifetime of seeking to know God, he's like the Apostle Paul saying, but I think I'm still in just the shallow zone. I think I'm still just, just in the beginning stages. There's so much of God to know, so much of him to experience. And after a lifetime, I feel like I'm still scratching the surface. Is that the way you would describe your life? Excited every morning to say, what will I learn of God today? What will God show me today? What will God place his heart upon my heart to help me know how he feels today? The great thing just to encourage you with is that it's not up to you. God's the one who's going to invite you into that next place. I love to tell people, if you really want to grow as a Christian... Ask yourself the question, for me to take the next step in my walk with God, what would that step be? Where would that step be? Do you even know where God wants you to go next? Where the next deep place would be for you and God? You may not know that, but God does. And, you know, I, I was reminded when I was um, raising my kids when they were younger, uh, my, one of the, the favorite things that my kids uh, and us would do is we would uh, go in the, the, the midst of the winter, we would take them to Edmonton. And in Edmonton, 
about three hours from us, was at that time the largest shopping mall in North America. It had everything in it. It had uh, huge water parks. And everything's indoors because it could be 40 degrees below zero outside. And these Canadians who are going crazy with the winter would escape to the mall. It had a big hotel right in the mall. And it had this water park. It had an amusement park. It had bowling lanes. It had submarine rides. They claimed that that mall had more submarines than the Canadian Navy had. It had uh, live dolphin shows. It had hundreds of stores. My wife and daughter would start hyperventilating when they walked into that mall. Like, so many stores, so little time. It would just be so exciting. And so every time we'd go there, the first day we'd go to the water park. We'd do all of that stuff. Huge slides, all indoors. The next day we'd go to the amusement park. And this amusement park was very interesting because over to one side it had all the the children's rides. It had a little choo-choo train that went around in a circle. And, uh, you know, just choo-choo. And these, my kids would be holding on. Like, hold on, kids. It's going around the corner, you know. And it would just go around a couple of times. And there was little areas of all those colored plastic balls you could jump in. And little children's kind of rides. And, and then it, it graduated up until at the far end of this place was this massive red roller coaster. This roller coaster was huge. And it's all indoors. So it's inside this massive ceiling. And uh, the first thing it would do is it would climb and climb and climb right to the very top like a good roller coaster is supposed to do and it would just hover there for a moment and then it would turn on its side and it would just race down the tracks it would do three complete somersaults like this circles it would race to the right and the left and because it's indoors the sound would reverberate through that whole building so uh, when that roller coaster goes racing down the tracks and everybody's screaming you can hear it just echoing through that whole cavernous building no matter where you are so i'd be over in kitty land with my kids on the choo-choo train. You know, hold on, Mike, you're coming up to the corner again. And all of a sudden, that roller coaster would go plummeting down the tracks. And everywhere in that building, you could hear the roar. You could hear the people screaming. And you could see the power as it would race back up and spin around upside down. And I would watch that roller coaster. And I would think to myself, I'm getting so sick and tired of this choo-choo train. (laughs) We've done this choo-choo train for years now. I'm ready to move on to a good ride. And so I would say, come on, kids, come with me. And we'd walk over to see the, i said, I want to show you a good ride. Look at that, I would say. And there was a, a pathway that went actually through one of the circles. You, you could actually stand there, and the roller coaster would come underneath your feet and then go upside down right over your head. And I would tell my kids, hold out your hands. Maybe you can get some loose change out of people's pockets. <laughs> Maybe we'll get a cell phone or something. And, uh, and then I would turn to my kids, and I would say, how would you like to ride that? Now that is a ride. Look how high it goes. Look how fast it goes. Feel the power of that thing. And uh, I would say, any of you want to go with me, I'll I'll sit right next to you. I'll hold your hand if you want me to. Uh, uh, If you get scared, just close your eyes. I'll tell you what's going to happen. Just just come with me. It'll be an amazing experience. And my kids would say, Dad, are you kidding? We could be killed on that thing. We're not going to ride that. I would say, but you don't have to worry. It's perfectly safe. I'll be right there with you. You'll, you'll, be, you'll thank me if you're just going at one time. They said, Dad, if you keep talking like this, we're going to tell Mom. And uh, I, I, tried, I tried bribing them. I said, what can I give you? I'll buy any treat in the concession stand, if you're, whoever goes with me. I'll buy you a pony if you just go with me on this thing. I was, I was getting desperate after years of choo-choo train rides. Come on, we got to do this. And they'd say, no, no, we can't. Do-. Finally, one of my kids said, well, Dad, if you, re- if you really want to go on this thing so badly, why don't you just go on it by yourself? Get it over with so you don't keep bothering us about it. I said, you guys don't understand. I said, it's not fun being terrified by yourself. I said, you need to be terrified with a loved one. I said, I want to be terrified with you. 
And uh, they said, it's not going to happen, Dad. So every year, I'd go through the same ritual. We'd go to the park. We'd do the water slide the first day. We'd do the amusement park the second day. We'd, we'd go to Kitty Land. We'd ride the choo-choo train. I'd make them come over to the, the loop. We'd hold out our hands, trying to get loose change. And, and every time, I would say, now, what about this year? You're all a year older. You're stronger, bigger, braver. How about all of us doing it this year? And nobody would. My oldest son, Mike, He's feeling the heat because he's the oldest. And I, I really put the pressure on him. Mike, you're, you and I are really the two men of the family. You know, well, why don't we leave the women and children behind and you and me can do a manly thing together. Like, man, like maybe this roller coaster right here, that would be a good thing. And he's feeling the heat. You know, he really wants to do this. He's old enough to ride it now. So he'd say, well, Dad, I, need, I think I need one more year. Next year, I'll ride it with you. And I would say, but Dad, Mike, that's what you told me last year. It is next year now. Well, I meant two years from then I would ride it with you. And he just, he just couldn't get, he was entrenched in fear. So I, I did a dastardly thing. I, I invited a professor who had two sons, my two sons' age, to come with us next year. They had lived in Europe. They rode every roller coaster in Europe. They love roller coasters. They've already announced the first thing we do on Saturday morning is they want to go ride that roller coaster right off the bat. My kids know that. So Friday night when we get checked into the hotel, I said to my boys, I said, now boys, you know, I don't want you to feel any pressure or anything, but you know, they're going to ride the roller coaster that I've been, you know, talking about for years. And, and, uh, but you know, you don't have to do that. I mean, if you feel more comfortable riding the choo-choo train, maybe that you can do that while they're riding the roller coaster. And they're just, they're feeling the heat. I, in fact, I feel so bad now. I actually confessed this to the Dobson several years ago and they, they forgave me. And so I feel better now about myself as a father, but, uh, but finally, a little bit later on Friday night, my sons come back to me and they say, Dad, for the black of the honor and reputation, we will ride that with you tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, sons, you won't regret this. So the next, the next day, we're all there in line, the very first thing, my two boys and me and this other family, my, my, my wife, my daughter on their knees praying for our safety, you know, that it all be, be fine. And, and uh, we get on that roller coaster. It does everything that I knew it would do. It was the most amazing ride. We're just going everywhere, up so high and so fast. My, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting next to my younger son. We're laughing like a bunch of girls, screaming away. And it's just like, we're just having the greatest time. When it ends, of course, they take pictures of you at this very, you know, the most terrible moment and then they sell it to you at exorbitant prices and my kids are saying we've got to get the picture dad we've got to show everybody that's all they could talk about they said dad it's the most amazing ride we've ever been on that was incredible and uh you know the interesting thing was that next year we came back to that same thing our annual pilgrimage and normally our routine would be that when we got to that mall we'd go into the amusement park and i'd I'd head over to the children's area because that's where we always began you know then we elevated our way up and so i started going to the children's area and my two boys in unison said dad where are you going i said well isn't this where we always go we always kind of start out over here they said dad the roller coaster's over there you know what they never went back to kiddie land again Once they saw what that could have been, what they could have been experiencing, suddenly everything that they had been so comfortable with before just was so terribly inadequate. In fact, my boy said, Dad, why did you keep letting us go to Kittyland when we could have been going on the roller coaster? I said, I tried. I begged you. You know, you wouldn't do it. And, uh... You know, the other thing that was interesting was my kids got hooked on roller coasters. I've created monsters now. And they, uh, a couple years later when they were teenagers... My 16 and 18-year-old son said, we, we came up with this a little road trip for the guys in our home, and we went to Denver, and we were going to go to a hockey game that night, but uh, during the day, we're going to just do ride roller coasters all day there at that uh, park right by Pepsi Center, and, uh, 
And, and, you know, it's not cool for an 18 and 16-year-old boy to hang out with a guy my age all day, but, but they, wouldn't, they wouldn't let me go. I think they kept saying, Dad, look at that roller coaster. Let's do that one first. And then look at that one over there. I saw that on TV one time on an advertisement. Let's do that next. And my friend talked about that one over there. That's amazing. Well, let's just go from there to there to there. About halfway through the day, I'm getting heart palpitations. I, I can feel the big one coming on. I'm just saying, why don't you just leave me at this cappuccino stand and go without me? I'll be fine. Just give me another latte to hold on. And, and uh, no, Dad, you can't stay behind. We've got to do this together. Dad, it's all three of us. We've got to do these together. And so they dragged me through the whole park. At the end of the day, we're on our way walking over to the hockey arena. I've got my two sons on either side of me. And as we're walking over, you could tell that they kind of had something they wanted to say. And they looked at me and they said, Dad, we've done a lot of cool things over the years, had a lot of great vacations. They said, but we've never done anything as awesome as this. This is the single greatest day we've ever had. Dad, they said, just think of the possibilities. Because there, there are theme parks like this all over the world. <laughs> and they said, we need to make this an annual event. They said, every year. They said, even when we're old and married and fat like you, Dad, they said, all the, all the, all the guys will get together. We're using your air miles and we'll go fly to a different city and we'll conquer every, every theme park and every roller coaster in that place. And every year we'll have a new adventure. They said, this is so exciting. Just think of the possibilities. And of course, as a father, you can imagine what's going through my mind. I'm thinking my, my children are saying the most awesome thing that they've ever done spending time with me, having new adventures with me, going to new heights with me, experiencing new things and new adventures and being stretched in ways they never dreamed with me. Saying, Dad, it just doesn't get any better than that, than being with you, having new memories, going places, Dad, with you. I wonder what that does in the heart of God when God comes to us and finds us in a spiritual kiddie land. God says, you know, when you became a spiritual baby, you started out in spiritual kiddie land. That was appropriate. That's, that was suited to where you were at. But, 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 but it's been five years now. It's been 10 years now. It's been 20 years now. You're still content in spiritual kiddie land, just saying the same cliched, shallow kind of prayers, still doing the same things that make you comfortable, that never stretch you, that never cause you to have to walk by faith. And, come with me. I mean, that's, that was fine then, but, but come with me because I've got so much more I want you to experience. There's so much of me, so much of my love, so much of my power. Don't just stay in kiddie land. As good as that might have been as a spiritual baby, that's just the beginning. That's just the front doorway. I've got all this I want you to experience as you walk with me. Now, how many Christians never leave spiritual kiddie land? I've met some. Even at the end of their life, If you were to measure the depth of their walk with God, it would be the same as it was their first years of walking with God 50 years earlier. They never grew, even though Jesus offered to take them by the hand and say, just come with me. I'll lead you to the next place. I'll be right beside you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Once you've experienced what I have for you, you'll never want to go back. When you see the heights I could take you, you'll wonder why you didn't trust me and take that step of faith years ago. But some Christians never did. Some Christians just stand right at the edge year after year. They look out over that red roller coaster. They hear people shouting and, uh, and laughing and experiencing new adventures, going to new heights. And they think in their heart, oh, would it be good to go to those places as a Christian as well? But, but I, I don't think I'm ready yet. And life passes them by. And they never know the adventure that could have been theirs if they had just taken Jesus by the hand and gone to that next place with him. Could Jesus be extending his hand to you to say, are you ready to go to the next place with me?
Are you ready to take that next step of faith with me? You've been where you are as a Christian far, far too long. It's time to move forward. What an exciting adventure when God takes you by the hand and says, let me show you where I can take you, what I can do through your life, what I can show you about myself. It's a, it's a ride of a lifetime, and you're going to look back on your life and say what an amazing adventure it was just continually going to the next place God had for me. I pray that wherever that place is for you, when Jesus holds out his hand and says, just trust me, come with me, wrestling with him won't even cross your mind. You'll just take him by the hand and say, let's go. And you'll, have, you'll experience a life like you never dreamed was possible. Let me take a moment to pray with you. Dear Lord, thank you for being a God who loves us too much to leave us where we are. Who, who loves us so much, you want us to experience all there is of you. And too, too often we're satisfied with just so little. Lord, I pray that for some of us who perhaps have been stalled out in the same place now for some time, that Lord, we would just trust you and take you by the hand and let you take us to the next place. Lord, don't leave us in spiritual kiddie land any longer. It's time that we were adults. It's time that we went on the adult adventures with you spiritually. Lord, um, it's so important for us to go to the next place with you because we can't give anybody what we don't have ourselves. And Lord, because some parents have stayed in a spiritual kiddie land, their kids have grown up in a kiddie land as well. Their spouse has grown up in a spiritual kiddie land. Lord, for our kids' sake, for our spouses and friends and colleagues' sake, we must go to the next place with you so that we have even more to give those around us as well. Help us, Lord, even if this day is an opportunity for us to take that next step, would you help us to have the courage to take you by the hand and trust you in whatever step we need to take next? And I would pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 